Take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, and we're actually going to end up in 1 John chapter 2, but I want to show you something in 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. By way of introduction, when my family and I lived in uh, Mongolia, we were always the outsiders because, frankly, uh, no matter how well we spoke the language, how well we knew the culture, how many Mongolian people we knew, you could look at us and immediately know we weren't Mongolian. I mean, you just couldn't get away with it. It really bugged my daughters. I did not realize how much until later, but it really bugged, irritated my daughters when we'd go through the marketplace. Most of these were open markets. You'd have a person, a vendor, might have a table six, eight feet wide with their particular product on it. And so there were a lot of people in these marketplaces selling and then a lot of people there buying. And you'd go through the marketplace and you could hear in Mongolian, they're talking about our children. Now they were saying nice things. Okay. I, I understand that, but I don't know about you. I don't like to be noticed like that. You know, can you imagine going to Walmart to do your shopping? Look at that person over there. Oh, wow. Did you see that person? Look, she has blonde hair, you know, and it's like, just doesn't feel comfortable. You're always the outsider. I want to remind you that as Christians, we are always going to be the outsiders in our culture. Now, there was a time, I I admit, when American culture was, uh, had such a, a strong Christian influence that as Christians, we felt relatively comfortable in our own culture and that is increasingly not true. Christianity has indeed become countercultural. Now, I didn't live through the 60s, but my parents, I remember my parents speaking very strongly against the people they called the hippies in the 60s. I'm not going to ask if you were a hippie, um, but they were really against the hippies because the hippies were countercultural. And uh, they had a whole list of things that the hippies did that, and, and many of them were, frankly, they were unbiblical. They were anti-God. And uh, so I can understand why my parents spoke so strongly against them. We have become the countercultural ones. Uh, think about this. We are the countercultural ones because we've, we believe, the Bible teaches us, that God created all things. That's become countercultural. We're the countercultural ones because we believe that God created man and woman. Now, I know that you think, surely a lot of people, no, there's a lot of people out there that think that there's a, there's a whole spectrum. There's something over here that's more, and I, I saw this recently, a, 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 a church member sent me the uh, PowerPoint slides for a talk that I understood was to be given at a local school. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, and he said, hey, I have some information for you. Let me send these to you. Um, we're the ones that are countercultural because we believe that there are men and there's women. We're the ones that are countercultural because we believe that God ordained marriage. It's not a government institution. Government doesn't decide what marriage is and what marriage is not. I don't decide what marriage is and what marriage is not. God decides what marriage is and what marriage is not. And God also gave us guidelines and he gives us grace for successful marriages. That's countercultural today. We've become countercultural because we believe God created us to work. Now, we don't always get paid for our work. I Granted, some of you mothers work much harder than I do, and you don't get paid for it. But work is a natural part of life. You pay attention a little bit to, to, to the news, and you'll hear people talk about, you know, robots are going to take over, and there's not going to be work for anybody. Trust me. 
As long as there are human beings who love God and follow his will, there's going to be work for us to do. That's become countercultural. We're the countercultural ones. And I, I don't say that, um, I don't say that to scare you or to make you feel awkward. But if you're feeling awkward in American culture, it's not you. It's the culture that has changed. It's not that we've suddenly decided to do strange things. It's our culture suddenly decided to abandon the truth of the Bible and go a different direction. And as long as you remain faithful to the word of God, you're going to feel increasingly out of place in our, in our culture. That's why we looked at, that's why we looked at last week, those, that passage in Philippians and just that one phrase again, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We talked about some areas, some ways that a Christian's life, Christian's attitudes, a Christian's behaviors are going to be different. We talked about the fact that our speech is going to be different. And I had that experience again this week. I was talking to a, to a man, not part of our church here, and uh, he got upset about, not at me, but he's just upset about something that happened in life. And language came out of his mouth that I'm not going to repeat. And I thought, ah, guess what? We have to watch what we say not use vulgarities, certainly not take the Lord's name in vain, not speak about people in ways that are, um, well, I'm going to say impolite, but you understand what I'm saying. There are ways to describe people that are accurate and, and appropriate without being just nasty. Our speech is going to be different if we're going to shine as lights in the world. So we're going to feel like we don't belong because we don't speak the way that other people speak. If we're going to shine as lights in the world, we're going to be developing marriages that focus on God's glory and that focus on passing on our faith to the next generation. We're not going to be focusing on personal happiness. Now, when I say that, never make the mistake of thinking I'm in an unhappy marriage. But the point of marriage is not to make you happy. The point of marriage is to bring glory to God, to represent the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, and to lay a foundation in which we can raise the next generation of, of Christians. That's going to feel increasingly countercultural in a culture that really says marriage is there to make you happy. And if you're not happy, well, then you move on. If we're going to shine as lights in the world, we're going to have a respect for others who do not respect us. They, they don't like us, so they're going to say false things about us. They're going to make false accusations. They're going to call us names. They're going to make fun. They're going to be scornful. And what is it when you're walking in the flesh, when I'm walking in the flesh, what is the natural response when people make false accusations against us and say nasty things about us? What is your natural response? Yeah, just let's do it back. Well, let me tell you what you are, Right? And make false accusations about them. They did it to me. You say, well, if, if we don't defend ourselves with false accusations or with slander or with nastiness, who's going to defend us? That's right. That's the whole point of the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms are those psalms. There's 150 psalms. Not all of them are imprecatory psalms. But imprecatory psalms are the ones, and you've read them, where the psalmist says, God, would you judge my enemies? God, would you send them to destruction? God, would you cause the stone that they're rolling towards me to roll back on them? Would you cause, cause them to fall into the pit that they've dug for me? Now, why does the psalmist pray that way? Because the psalmist isn't going to defend himself. He's going to let God defend him. 
And that's going to seem increasingly countercultural. You, if you follow politics, or right now we're in a, in a political season, people are getting ready to vote. It just seems like the Republicans can only say nasty things about the Democrats, and the Democrats can only say nasty things about the Republicans. And if you stay out of that fray, and you try to speak truth and deal in facts, you're going to feel countercultural. That's just the way it is. Don't let that bother you because we shine as lights in the world. We talked last week about if we're going to shine as lights in the world, our friendships are going to be different because they're not going to be based on what we need from other people. They're not networks of folks from whom we're going to ask favors. We don't do favors for our friends so that they're obligated to do favors for us, which is how most friendships work. We're going to make friends because we love God and we love the people that God has created. We're going to serve selflessly, even if our friends never serve us. If we're going to shine as lights in the world, we're going to choose different entertainment. We're going to choose different music. We're going to choose different movies. We're going to, we're just, it's just going to feel like we're out of place. Well, we are out of place, but the reason we're out of place is very important. We're not out of place simply because we want to be reactionary, okay? Um, everyone else is doing this, so I'm going to do that. Everyone else is driving on the right side of the road, so I'm going to drive on the left side of the road. That doesn't make sense. We're, we're different. We're countercultural because we have a relationship with God that motivates us. So you're in 1 John chapter 1. Follow along as I read out loud um, verses 5, 6, and 7. 1 John 1, 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Two points I want you to note in verse 7 there. The first is to maintain our relationship with God, who is light. We are sanctified. We walk in the light. And second, we are forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. That's not the message today. The message is going to come from 1 John 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. But I want you to understand, why is it that we're countercultural? It's not because we're reactionary. It's not because we're trying to hold on to the past. It's not because we are politically conservative. It's because we have a relationship with God and he is light. And we're, we are walking in that light while everyone else is walking in darkness. So it's going to feel odd to us. Let's pray and then we'll get to uh, second, uh, to first John chapter two. Father, thank you for uh, blessing us uh, this morning with many visitors, for blessing us with, uh, by meeting with us and taking your Holy Spirit and cleaning us up forgiving our sin, giving us hearts that were wholehearted in worshiping you. And again this evening, singing your praises and enjoying singing your praises and enjoying the fellowship one with each other. I pray that this evening you would focus us on your word, help us understand the meaning and then its application to our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First uh, John 2 verse 15, you know this one, love not the world neither the things that are in the world. 
If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I want to consider what this means for us as Christians. If you take one lesson away tonight, I hope you take more than that, but if you take one lesson away tonight, take away this truth. You can either love God or you can love the world. It says in verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can either love the Father or you can love the world. I know that seems harsh, but it's, it's true. You can either love God or you can love the world. Now, uh, you understand, like in a family, I have four children. I love Emily, and I love Elsie, and I love Caleb, and I love Carissa. I love all four, and, and that's possible. But I can't love my wife and love another woman like I love my wife. That, that is incompatible. In fact, uh, James describes it that way for us. In James chapter 4, he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that to be friends, and I'm paraphrasing here, is to be friends with the world is to be the enemy of God. And so we can't love God and love the world at the same time. So we have to constantly examine ourselves and say, what what is it that I love? What is it that I really uh, am, am... pursuing, seeking after. Toward that end, I've I've thought carefully about what does it mean to love the world? What does it mean to love God? Let me say tonight, we love the world when we seek the world's affirmation more than we seek God's affirmation. When I'm more concerned about what they think of me, the world thinks of me, than what God thinks of me, then really what I love is I love the world. Now think about one application. This is not the only application. But have you noticed how some Christians get so excited when there's a celebrity who says, I'm a Christian, or says, you know, I believe in, in, in marriage, one man and one woman, or I believe that abortion is wrong, I'm pro-life. Have you noticed how some Christians get so excited when a celebrity comes out and says that? Whether it's a, a celebrity athlete, or a celebrity actor, or a celebrity musician, they get so excited. I feel like this mic is a little hot, and I'm going to hurt somebody's ears here. They get so excited. Why is that? Because in our minds, we really want the world to agree with us. I'm not surprised when the world disagrees with us. You shouldn't be either. When a judge says, nope, this isn't the way it's going to be. We're going to let one man marry another man. We're going to let a woman marry a woman. Don't be surprised by that. that. That is the world system. That is the way the world thinks. They've abandoned the truth of God's word, and so that all that is left is human reasoning. We desi- when we desire the affirmation of the world more than the affirmation of God, then it's an indication, it's a symptom that we're loving the world. We love the world more than we love God when we worry about how the world perceives us, what the world thinks of us, more than what God thinks of us. And I have to admit, I, I struggle with this. You know, I, I want people to like me. I want to be accepted by the world. I, I want them to think I'm a good guy. But as we stand for truth, increasingly people are going to be antagonistic toward us because we stand for truth. 
Again, it's like shining a bright light in a dark room. If you shine a bright light into somebody's eyes in a dark room, they're probably going to get angry at you. It's irritating. But we've become countercultural. Not because we've changed, not because the Bible's changed, but because our culture has changed. We love the world when we pursue the world's philosophy more than biblical truth. If your goal is to get your child into Stanford, I challenge you that you probably love the world more than you love God. Now, Stanford's a nice school, I suppose. I think it has a beautiful campus. I've never been there. Anyone ever been to the Stanford campus? Okay. Is it beautiful? Beautiful campus. Good museum. Is it about, uh, what is the museum about? The body. The anatomy. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Beautiful campus. The problem with what goes on at Stanford is it is against God. Most of it. I, I'm not saying every single piece. I, I don't know. But a lot of it is against God. Our goal for our children should be to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not to make sure they get a good education so they can get a good job so they can support us in our old age. When we love the world more than we love God, then we adopt the world's goals. And we talked about this last week. What is it that the world's trying to do? They're trying to collect possessions. They're trying to collect power. They're trying to become famous. I guess I understand. I, I, I just see the... Uh, the uh, stats, the, the numbers. I understand that the uh, main goal, the most common goal of elementary students today is to become an influencer on social media. Used to be an astronaut, you know, or a police officer. Now they all want to become social media influencers. When that becomes our goal, it's an indication that we love the world more than we love God because we've adopted the world's goals as our own. So let's turn all of those around. When we love God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we desire God's affirmation more than we desire the world's affirmation. I believe one of the greatest rewards of heaven will be to get to glory and have God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we work toward? Isn't that what we want to hear? We don't care what the world says. I don't need to become a social media influencer. I don't need to become a celebrity pastor. I don't need to be famous. I don't need to write a lot of books. And oh yeah, there's there's the Dean book again. I got to go buy that book too. I don't need that. What I need to know is that God says you're doing the good job. When we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we worry more about how God perceives us than how the world perceives us. Um, a young person here at Elmira was talking with me a couple months ago now, some time ago now, maybe even a year ago, some time ago, just said his concern was that too many Christians just want to stay in their comfort zone. They just want to stay where they're comfortable rather than doing what God has called them to do. And I'm not, I didn't see that as an indictment of Elmira Baptist Church as much as just he's talking about the wider culture. I'm, he, I'm concerned, he said, there's so many Christians, they just can't be moved out of their comfort zone. And why is that? Well, because we're more concerned about how the world perceives us, what they'll think of us, than how God perceives us and what God thinks of us. When we love God wholeheartedly, then we pursue biblical truth more than we pursue the world's philosophy. And when we love God wholeheartedly, 
then we adopt God's goals as our own goals. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Look at the next verse with me. 1 John 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So then he defines for us the characteristics of the world. Hold your place in 1 John. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, and I want you to see these same three uh, temptations, these same three defining characteristics in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, where Satan tempts Eve to eat the fruit. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, And when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The first defining characteristic of the world is the lust of the flesh. It says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that lust of the flesh is the bodily cravings we all share. Uh, you like to eat, don't you? I like to eat. I, I like to eat too much. Uh, you like to sleep. I hope you like to sleep. Some of you, I think, need to get some more sleep. And I, and I don't mean that as a, I, you're not a terrible person. I'm just saying, you're working really hard. You've maybe got little kids and boy, you wish you could get more sleep. I understand that. I'm not there now, but I remember being back at Bible college and trying to work a job and, and take classes, and we had some ministries to do, and boy, I wish I could have gotten more sleep. Is there anything wrong with a desire to sleep? The answer is no. There are some desires that we have, though, that can become, uh, that can become sinful very quickly. Even the desire to sleep can become sinful, right? The Proverbs condemns the sluggard who turns in his bed like a door turns on its hinges. He just stays in bed all the time. Uh, eating is not evil, but if we eat and indulge the flesh to the point that we become unhealthy, then guess what? We're taking the temple that God has made and we're, de- we're destroying it. So any of these bodily cravings that we share can be indulged in and can be, and can be um, uh, uh, in our vain effort to satisfy them, can be overindulged. Write down Romans 13, 14, if you're taking notes. Romans 13, 14 says, Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, it starts, and make no, not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. The, 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 lust, the difficulty about the lust of the flesh is there's a lot of these urges and these desires that are natural and they're right when they're regulated by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Sleep, eating, the desire for conversation. It only becomes sin when I eat to the point of gluttony, when I sleep and become sluggardly, when I use my conversations as an avenue for gossip. The Holy Spirit will never lead me there, but we, we, we just give into the flesh. That's a defining characteristic of the world, the lust of the flesh. Avoid those things then that feed your flesh. Avoid doing those things that make your flesh rise up and say, more, I want more. Choose to do those things that keep the flesh in its place. And for each one of us, it's different. Uh, We could give a lot of applications here, but allow the Holy Spirit to, to show you in your life if there's a place where you're feeding the flesh, you're indulging the flesh, 
And it's not going to make it easier to say no to the flesh. It always becomes harder to say no to the flesh when we indulge the flesh. So the lust of the flesh, the second defining characteristic of uh, the world, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. What do you see here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 that corresponds to the lust of the eyes? Let me read you the verse again. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. She looked at that. She thought, boy, that would taste good. And she looked at it and she said, that looks good. That looks pleasant to my eyes. The lust of the eyes is that natural inclination we all have to look at beautiful things, to look at things that are pleasing, whether it's architecture. Buildings can look pleasing to some people, whether it's scenery. Some of you enjoy hiking. And one of the glories, one of the great things about hiking is to get up to some place where most people never get to because it's a hike to get there. And to look out over a vista and see the mountains and the rivers and the trees, it's just a beautiful sight, isn't it? Again, there's nothing wrong with looking at beautiful things until we leave the regulation of the Holy Spirit, until we leave behind the wisdom of God's Word and we indulge the eyes. And Proverbs tells us that the eyes are never satisfied. The eyes are never satisfied. There's a second side to this lust of the eyes. The first thing is we like to look at beautiful things. The second thing we like to do is we like to look good as ourselves, don't we? Just this morning, Kenny in the back there in his special seat said, don't you look dapper today. I don't know if you even know what dapper means. I'm not sure, but I took it as a compliment. I like to look dapper, right? Don't you like to look good? I mean, who likes to look bad? Now, some of you have children and you say, well, my child doesn't care how he looks. Yeah, I understand. But most of us, we like to look good. This is also part of the lust of the eyes. We like people to look at us and think, oh, that's a handsome man or that's a beautiful lady. or That person sure dresses nicely. Now, my goal when I dress myself to come to worship the Lord is not to be a distraction. So I try to keep my tie straight, try to keep my hair combed. Uh, if you if you know me, you know my hair likes to just go everywhere. I try to keep my hair combed. Uh, you know, try to try to wear matching clothes so you know, the colors don't clash, and try to make sure that it's clean. Every once in a while, I pull a shirt out of the closet, and somehow I've already gotten something on it. And there's nothing wrong with trying to look appropriate so that you don't aren't a distraction to people. But when we leave the regulation of the Holy Spirit, then what becomes important to us? is to look better than other people, to draw people's attention because we are that good looking. Now, I don't have that temptation. (laughs) I don't think people look at me because I'm good looking. But let's give some applications to both sides of the lust of the eyes. Don't make excuses for what you look at on the internet. There's a lot of stuff on the internet that's very pleasing to the eyes and there's nothing wrong with it. You're perfectly fine. The, the trouble with the internet is you never, it seems to me you almost never know what might pop up that you shouldn't be looking at. You just, I don't know how you keep those things out. At the uh, previous ministry I was at, I mentioned a lot of my duties involved the school, and we were trying to think of a way that we could get our students online to use the internet to accomplish some, some important goals for education, and and... make sure that they would never see anything else that they shouldn't see. 
And I never solved that problem. If you've solved it, you let me know. It seems like I'll be looking at news. And news about Ukraine and the war that's going on there, or the special military operation that's going on there in Ukraine. And all of a sudden, here's an ad for, I didn't ask for that ad. I didn't want to see that. So we have to be careful, men, especially what we look at on the internet. Don't just assume that because you start out in a good place that you're going to end up at a good place. The Bible says that Jesus told us it would be better to pull out our right eye and throw it aside than to be cast into hell with two eyes. Now, I'm not suggesting, and neither is Jesus, that we need to blind ourselves. What I am suggesting is if it's become a problem, then turn it off. Walk away. If the, if the uh, technology becomes such a problem, you can't turn it off and walk away, destroy it. Give it away. Throw it in the garbage. You'd be better off without an iPad or iPhone or Android phone or I mean, whatever the technology is than to allow your eyes to be feasting on evil. So don't make excuses for what you look at. Don't make excuses for the, the movies that you watch. I don't know about you. I found it's, it seems nearly impossible anymore to find a movie that honors the Lord and, and it is, has biblical values. So we just don't watch a lot of movies. You know, when, when I get to heaven, God's not going to say to me, how many movies did you watch? Hey, did you see that movie? Do you know who this actor is? God doesn't care about those things, does he? And if I'm seeking the affirmation of the Lord, not the affirmation of the world, then it shouldn't bother me when, when a coworker, well, in my case, it's not going to be a coworker, but when a neighbor starts talking to me about the latest movie, have you seen this movie? No. Do you know who this actor is? Nope, can't say that I do. This actress? No, don't think I've heard of her. It does feel awkward, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes I think, Where, what country am I living in? I don't know what's going on. But again, if we love God... We can't love the world. And so there's going to be some things about the world we just aren't going to understand. And we're just not going to be a part of that culture. It's very important to men, particularly, that we guard our eyes just as we go through life. You don't have to get on the Internet. You don't have to turn on your smartphone or, or, or go to the movies in order to see evil. You can be driving down the street. So we just have to guard our eyes. We have to ask God to give us grace to look where we need to look instead of looking at things that we ought not to look at. Let me make this final uh, application to this lust of the, lust of the eyes. Uh, and this one is for the ladies. Ladies, don't chase looking good as your primary goal. Now, again, I don't think anyone should look ugly on purpose. That's not what I'm saying. But it's, it's a false thought that somehow if you look good, you're a better person. What you want to do is look the way God wants you to look, be satisfied with the way he made you and what he's given you, and, and just not let it bother you. Um, next one, pride of life. All that is in the world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look here in Genesis 3, 6 again. I'll read the verse to you one more time. See if you can discern the piece of this verse that, is, that corresponds to the pride of life. And when the woman saw that the, tr the tree was good for food, that was the lust of the flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, that was the lust of the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Notice that it says it was a tree desired to make one wise. 
This pride of life is the common aspiration we all share to be superior to others. It's not good enough to be as good as. We want to be better than. I grew up with two younger brothers, so there's a lot of competition. Jesse, you grew up with three younger brothers. A lot of competition. I was always the best one, but they didn't want to admit it. (laughs) I mean, you just, competition. Some of you uh, ladies, you've been working in the nursery faithfully. Thank you for working in the nursery. Have you noticed the difference when we had four little boys in there? Now we have four or five little girls. Now, I'm not saying there's no sin among the girls, but there's not the same level of competition. Anytime you put three or four boys together, it seems like everything has to become a winner and a loser. Some of that is the pride of life. And you've noticed, if you've traveled at all, you've noticed that in every continent you go to, every country you you visit, that there is one ethnic group that hates another ethnic group. When we were in Mongolia, it was always the Mongolians hating on the Chinese. You go to China, and they hate on the Mongolians. And if you go to Japan, they hate the Koreans. And if you go to Korea, they hate the Japanese. If you go to England, Sheila, they hate the Irish. And if you go to Ireland, they hate the English. It's just the way it is. Where does that hatred come from? It comes from this pride of life, this desire to be superior to other people. Just the, uh, the battle between men and women. When you were a kid, do you remember the saying, boys go to Mars to get more candy bars. Girls go to Jupiter to get more stupider. You don't remember that saying? We said that to each other all the time. What was it about girls in elementary school that we didn't understand? I don't know, but they they were going to Jupiter. We were going to Mars. I'm glad Grayson isn't here. Oh, don't, don't listen to this, Hudson. Bella, don't. What is this tension between men and women? It's this desire to feel superior, superior to other people. How many Americans measure their success in life by their superiority to others? Whether I've got better possessions than you, I've got a nicer car than you, I've got a nicer uh, job than you, I've got a nicer house, I've got a nicer boat than you have, I have a nicer wife than you have, or I've got a better husband than you have. What is this desire we always have to be superior? It is the pride of life. And this pride of life always starts out bad and it gets worse. You see, the lust of the flesh, there are some cravings that we have in our bodies that we've got to fulfill, sleeping and eating, etc. Nothing wrong with them as long as we stay regulated by the Holy Spirit. We like to look at beautiful things. The, The eyes enjoy looking at beauty. And again, nothing wrong with that if we keep them regulated by the Holy Spirit. But how do you regulate the pride of life? The Bible says that God resists the proud, says it in two places. One is James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The other place is 1 Peter 5, 5. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Wasn't it pride that was the destruction of Satan, of Lucifer, who said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times he said, I will be better than God. Pride is so destructive. But again, pride is a characteristic of the world. I've got a better education than you. I've got a, I'm taller than you are. And I'm, I'm stronger than you are. And, you know, I'm tanner than you are. Or I'm paler than you are. It's funny. We like tan here in America. You know, in Mongolia, they liked paleness. That was one thing they commented about our daughters. You know, they're they're so beautiful. Look at their white skin. 
Don't laugh, Guillermo. You're going to make him feel bad again. I've got two of them here. This desire to feel superior, where does it come from? The pride of life. We've got to be careful about this because as Christians, what happens? God is good to us. He pours out his grace upon us. There's change in our life that's positive, that's, that's biblical. And then we start to feel better than the guy who isn't touched by the grace of God. Well, how did I get here? By the grace of God. Not because I'm a better person. And God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when you are thinking about loving the world, when you love the world, these three defining characteristics come out, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if you're loving the world, you can't love God because they're mutually exclusive. Finally, go back to uh, 1 John chapter 2. Let's look at verse 17. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will make personal application for you because what you are experiencing, the, the temptations you have, may be very different than the temptations I have. Some people struggle with the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life more than I do. Some of you struggle less than I do. But if you will be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, he'll take a, a message from his word here from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, and he'll make direct application to your life and where you're at. So back to uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I mentioned earlier that when we love God more than we love the world, then we adopt God's goals as our own goals. And we choose to invest in, in things that will last for eternity. The world and the lust of the world, it passes away. It's temporary. It only lasts a, a short while. But the person who does the will of God abides forever. So let me encourage you finally to choose to invest because you love God because you've rejected loving the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, because you love God, invest in what will last for eternity. That type of investment, type of investment takes effort and intentionality. Nobody invests in eternity on accident. Now, I'm not really big into personal investing. I don't have a whole lot of money to personally invest. I do invest toward my retirement. I, I hope you do as well. But to be an investor takes some financial discipline, doesn't it? Because I don't know about you, it's much easier to spend money that's in my pocket. In fact, you know the easiest way to spend money? Pull out a credit card. And you tell yourself, I'll pay for that later. Heaven help us. This isn't about budgeting. But spiritually speaking, too, it takes spiritual discipline to invest in what will matter for eternity. It takes boldness to invest in what will matter for eternity. We have to get out of our own comfort zone and what we're comfortable with and what comes naturally to us. Because when we, come, when we only follow what comes naturally to us, we're mostly walking in the flesh. Now, by God's grace, he's given us, each one of us has talents and abilities that he wants to use. And I'm not saying every time you feel like, boy, this is just what God created me for, that you're walking in the flesh. But that's the overriding old man that comes out when we're not careful. We have to be bold to leave our comfort zone and to invest in what matters for eternity. So there are three things. There are three things that the Bible says 
abide forever, live forever. The first is God. God is forever. And anything you can do to invest in your personal relationship with him will last forever. So what are we doing? What am I doing? What are you doing to invest in my relationship with God? What am I going to do tomorrow? We had an excellent discussion Wednesday night here in the, in the men's group, an excellent discussion simply about how do we find time as busy men with jobs to read our Bibles for profit in a way that will be a blessing to us personally. And I was amazed at the different ways that God, the Holy Spirit, has led some of you men to find profitable time to read your Bible. I, I told my wife later, they, some of the things they suggested would have never occurred to me. But if your relationship with God is important, you will find time, you will make time to spend in His Word and in prayer and meditation. Because God lasts forever and your relationship you're building with God will last forever. If you don't enjoy spending time with God, what do you think you're going to be doing for all of eternity? Whenever we read through Revelation, what are the people doing? They're standing before the throne. They're praising Him. It doesn't appear that they wander about tending their rose garden. Now, I sure hope we have roses in heaven. These are beautiful roses, by the way. I sure hope we have roses in heaven. But there's no indication that we do much other than praise God through all of eternity. So let's invest in that relationship we have with God now. There's a second thing that the Bible says lasts forever, and that's the Word of God. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So what are we doing to invest in the word of God, to get its truths into my brain and to get its truths into my heart? Investing in our relationship with God, investing in the word of God. And the third thing that lasts forever is people's souls. Everybody will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. That's what the Bible teaches us. And what are we doing to invest in people? What are we doing to sow the gospel so that people are saved? What are we doing now that they're saved? What are we doing to, to disciple them so that they are baptized and, and uh, added here to Elmira Baptist Church? These are the things that will last forever. Our relationship with God, His Word, and our, uh, and our investment in His Word, and people. Uh, back when I was in high school... I was really burdened about investing in people. And so I began to pray that God would show me how to invest in people. I'm just a high school student. You know, I'm, I'm not all that important. And, and I just, Lord, I want to invest in people. So one day, uh, a lady called me. She said, my co-worker's friend's son just tried to commit suicide. He's a teenage boy. I'd like you to go visit him. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, See, here's God. He's sending someone my way. I said, where, where does he live? She gave me the address. It was on Albina Street. Now, I know Albina Street doesn't mean anything to you, but it's in North Portland, which is sort of like going to Richmond. And I said to my parents, this lady called, and I told her it was Patty. I said, Patty called, and she said, this guy, his name is Juan. He lives in Albina Street, and I've got an address, and, and he just tried to commit suicide. This is before cell phones, and... She said, you got to go see him. I said, he tried to commit suicide. I'd like to go see him. They said, he lives in North Portland. You can't go see him. Now, you know my parents. They love me. They love ministry. They just don't love me in North Portland. I said, well, what can I do? They said, well, why don't you see if Leonard Conway will go with you? 
Uh, I don't think if I were trying to get someone to go with me, Leonard Conway would have been the guy in my mind. But anyway, I said, okay. So I called Leonard. He had free time. He said, sure, I'll go with you. So Leonard and I, we drove across town to North Portland. We met uh, Juan. He had tried to cut his wrist, so he had his wrists bound up with with, uh, with uh, uh, bandages, gauze. Thank you, with bandages. And uh, just, I mean, when a person doesn't have any hope, that's when they try to commit suicide. So I just gave him the gospel because I didn't know what else to do. And right there, that day, Juan made a profession of faith. I said, okay, Juan, it's time, it's time for you to start growing. Why don't you come out to church with me? I don't know how I ever talked my parents into it, but for a while, I drove across town to North Portland and would pick up Juan and bring him to church. And then uh, Juan joined the uh, military, and I, I lost track of him for a while. And then he showed up again after he got out of the military. My wife and I, by that time, we were married. We were back uh, serving there in a church in Portland area, and he showed up, and, and uh, we renewed our friendship. And I, I, I just couldn't get him to commit to, to being serious-minded about his Christianity. And then I don't remember, he disappeared, and I just lost track of him. Well, four years ago, of all things, when his father passed away, he called the church there in Portland, Westgate Baptist Church, and he said, my father passed away. Is Scott Dean there? I'd like him to perform the funeral. You know, it's a reminder that we may not see all the results of our gospel sowing and our discipleship in this life. But there are ongoing results of what we do. If we're bold and we follow the Holy Spirit and get out of our comfort zone and go to Richmond, if that's where the people are, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you tonight, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because I want you to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And rather than investing in the things of the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, Invest in things that will matter for eternity. Father, thank you for the uh, people that are here. I know because they're here on a Sunday night that they're serious, that they care deeply about their relationship with you. And I was blessed this last Wednesday as the men talked, and so many of them are fighting and scrapping to spend time with you each day because it's important to them and bless them for their extra effort. Open up opportunities for them to study, to pray, to meditate on your word. Open up doors of opportunities for these ladies, particularly these ladies with children, to study your word and to pray and to meditate on your word. Open up doors of opportunity this week for us to sow the gospel, to tell people that there is a God in heaven. He judges man righteously, and one day he's sending his son, Jesus Christ, to conquer and to establish a kingdom. And they want to get on God's side now. Give us boldness to be a gospel witness this week. Open our eyes to fields that are white to harvest. I pray, Lord, that we would be intentional, consciously investing in eternity. Father, show us where we have allowed the love of the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life to get into our thinking and mess with us Help us to push that aside and focus on loving you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. May we encourage each other. Holy Spirit, work in my heart, work in our hearts to bring the specific application of these principles home to us. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.